Hello everyone, and welcome to this, the 74th annual Hunger Games! How are you all on this fine, fine evening? How do you do? How do you do? And welcome! Welcome to the arena! <laughs> hey folks! You didn't think I wouldn't be dressed up for this, did ya? Hi everyone! I see gems, I see Tenacia, Timberwolf, how's it going? Missy, Van, Hey, how you doing? How you doing, everybody? Just to, uh, you know, just to give you a quick look, because... Oh, man, I figure it might be important while I've still got it on, because there's no chance I'm gonna get through the entire stream wearing this. Just a little bit of, uh, a little bit of that, mmm. A little bit of that, like, color story, kind of clashy. Of course, we've got some silver piping going on here, which is... absolutely disgusting and 100% necessary. Gems, thank you very, very much. Dahlia, I'm glad to hear you are doing quite well. That's lovely news. Best year of your life? That is fantastic news. Now, when you say thus far, do you mean best calendar year of your life, as in the last 20 days or so? Either way, it's very good news, and I'm very happy to hear it. Van says, wear this every week or I'll never forgive you. Van? Van? I can only live for your forgiveness so often. Not this time. Not this time, I'm afraid. I even have... Here, let me see if I can... Is there any way to make this not stupid? Ooh, I made it more dumb. Oh, no. Oh, no. Now I just look like I need, like, a <laughs> a boat drink in hand and a mic, uh, like, a long microphone in the other and, and just, you know, sort of, like, welcoming people up to the stage to sing some mid-80s karaoke. Hello, hello, hello. I do hope you are all doing quite well. Uh, Y'all, welcome back. Uh, Sander, is Sander in yet? Is Sander in to check out the new font? Uh, yes, I did point to the wrong side and then just sort of tried to, uh, play it off as if that was the intent the whole time. Uh, I really do look like a terrible lounge singer, don't I? That's fine. That's fine. Is there much of a difference? I don't think so. Uh, over in Discord, Gertie, Orly Rose, Sierra Maria, MMP, UU, Empress K. Hello, everyone. Ooh, y'all. Y'all. Who's excited? Yes, that is the chant from Finding Nemo, and it's also the one I use to get my, ow, 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 get my, get my face feeling dexterous. <laughs> cool font says Heart Hook. I'm glad to hear it. Oh boy, oh boy. Oh, hello, Dahlia. <laughs> Dahlia, that's not my news, but congratulations to you. As, as in, I'm not going to say it out loud, but congrats to Dahlia. Look at you, Dahlia. <laughs> Dahlia, straight up, that is wonderful to hear. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. I never thought it could be like this, but it is. That really is great to hear. I'm super excited about that. Fantastic. <laughs> um, Let's see. Crorplavia? I'm gonna go ahead and say, let's see. I say, <laughs> Plavia says, so excited, man. Glad to be here. I am excited to have you here as well. Is Plavia okay? Or am I just like starting from the middle of your name somewhere? Cause I'll try to remember Zane, but will I be able to remember it? I don't know. I can give it a shot. Um, also, if you tell me what part of the world that's from, or like if it's, if it's not from a part of the world, it's from uh, a country or something. Uh, you know, like parts of the world. No, sorry. Uh, if it's not from a part of the world as much as it's from like a game or a novel or something, let me know and I will give it a shot. I, I can try to pronounce it. Kroplavia? Kroplavia? 
That that is where I would start. But of course, that sounds it's it's reading Eastern Bloc to me, and I might be a totally wrong. <laughs> Congrats indeed to Dahlia. It's Latin. Okay. Cror Plavia. Is it all one word or is it two words? As 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 it is in my head, as in Plavia would work. Um, let's see. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> indeed, it has been a little while since we saw the Molly Wobbles gang. Welcome. Yep, Armaria says, uh, getting over COVID. So this is a great distraction tonight. Yes, and I do hope that uh, if I <laughs> if I can be a distraction to you uh, while people are recuperating, recovering, reconciling, uh, additional R words, then I'm going to be very pleased to hear it. Uh, Tanisha says, whoa, I can't believe it's been so long already. Tanisha has been subscribed for 16 months, and I am also very thankful. Uh, Tanisha, 16 months indeed, right? It doesn't, it feels like a long time, and then other times it feels like it's been moments, and so, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> welcome back. And uh, just sort of like a general, all, to all of you folks who have been here, I've got a question. I got a question. Hands up in chat. I don't know how you're going to accomplish that, but I am going to say it and not fix it. Hands up in chat if you were here since before we started Percy Jackson. Obviously, virtually no one was here throughout the entirety of Harry Potter. But if you've been here since Harry Potter, if you were here since before Percy Jackson, hands up in chat. It looks like Plague Deity found out some way to do it. <laughs> Intikana says, Sam, I got my sidecar stories merch hoodie and I'm in love. Intikana, you know what's crazy? I have not. Uh, I was supposed to get a sample for myself and for Holly Rose and I have not been able to get my hands on it yet. Um, I have not heard much of a response either, so I'm going to need to dig in a little deeper on that one. But uh, I'm glad that you got it. I'm glad you are enjoying it. Um, and uh, be careful. Don't spill on it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one thing that the design looks great on a white hoodie, but it is, of course, then a white hoodie, isn't it? Uh, oh, boy. Got lots of hands up in chat. Awesome. Plague Deity, Missy, uh, Tanisha, Gwendog. Let's see. Uh, Plavia, uh, JCA. Oh, just under a different name, you say? Okay, well, now I'm curious. What what name do I know you by? Um, Timberwolf. Uh, let's see. Armoria, Jessica, HUD. Ooh, we got lots of folks. Lots of folks. At least three years. Yeah, Molly Wobbles. I remember the day that y'all joined just because, like, it was a funny name. And also, uh, two people, like, joining in tandem is a fairly rare occurrence here. Um, uh, <laughs> Louise said, oh, what is that? That looks like a big... I'm having a hard time seeing that. What is that? Um, uh, Luis. Indeed. Uh, Armoria. Orly Rose says, oh, heck yeah. Hands up. Fantastic. Molly Wobble says, I can't remember when I used to go to sleep without Sam reading to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope you all have had a chance to jump back in and uh, continue to listen to Harry Potter. Uh, we have got the Flying Sidecar repertoire is now up on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Search for Flying Sidecar. Um, I will soon have more available on uh, Vintage Sidecar as well, but right now that's a, that's a bit of a process. I'm going back to the early phases, back before I did any midweek editing, and it's messy, messy, messy. Van says, I remember the day I caught up with the archive and jumped into the first live one. Yeah. Y'all, I hope you're excited. I certainly, certainly am. Uh, Dahlia says, I'll be lurking as always. But uh, Dahlia, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Um, everybody, are you ready 
for a new series? Are you prepared for it? Um, I do hope that you are. Today, of course, The Hunger Games begins. Uh, we are going to be reading three chapters today. Um, I, I tried to work it out a couple of different ways. We're going to be reading three chapters today, and I, I realized that although the beginning, although the first section, part one, out of the three parts that this book is divided up into, part one is the only little wonky one. Other than part one, parts one and two and three all fit really, really nicely into streams, which is going to be awesome. We don't have any big, like, we're not trying to do 15,000 words one week because it's the only thing that kind of works for us. Uh, let's see. Each part is divided up exactly into three uh, streams, and uh, each uh, stream is going to be three chapters long. It's going to be really easy to keep track of throughout this book. Um, a couple of reminders, as we always do for these. Number one, if you are jumping in here and you're like, hey, I would love to share this with people, or I would just love to see this sort of channel, this project, whatever, I would love to see it grow a little bit, share the link. That is the best way to do it. I used to have it all over the place. Now the link, it's the one and forever, linktree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That's the one to share. That's the one to use to go and check out the Discord because, of course, that's where we do all of our discussion midweek. That's where we do all of our coordinating. That's where I do most of my notification stuff. There we go. Um, uh, let's see. Jesper is wondering, will these be archived on YouTube? No, these are going to be available um, uh, typically on Monday of the following week. Uh, on Spotify. If you want to find these, if you want to find these episodes in the future, you can find them obviously for two weeks here on Twitch. And then uh, subsequently after that, the archive is going to be on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you are looking for podcasts in a different place and you don't see Flying Sidecar there, because that's the one to search. If you don't see Flying Sidecar, do please let me know over on Discord. Or you can tweet me, Instagram me. I'll, I can typically read those. Um, finally... As per usual, um, it's a new series. And what does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. I am now getting into a new world of art. Uh, it can be harder to find with some of these series, and uh, I'm, I'm finding with that with this one already. So it's possible that the art will be less frequent. I might go down from, you know, two or three per chapter. Um, I had to go down from like five per chapter in Harry Potter down to about two to three per chapter. It's possible I will eventually have to go down to one, but I think overall that should be okay. Um, if I can't find the proper art for different sections of the book, um, I'll just go down to one. I know a lot of you are in this just for the audio anyway. Um, and then the very last thing is I'm getting into art, of course, but I'm getting very much into the voices. All right, so that is my reminder to you all, uh, is that the voices are gonna change. They, it's an organic process. I, uh, for Harry Potter, of course, I had done extensive practice because I was just doing it, not for a stream, not for anybody but uh, Mama Cass, but I was just doing it for fun. And so I got a lot of practice in. In this one, I have not had a ton of practice. I haven't read through entire books of this uh, with the character voice and everything. So I am gonna be finding my way into these. Uh, they may change over time. I may decide, you know what? I'm just gonna change this one entirely. I actually considered doing that with Rachel Elizabeth Dare for the last series, and uh, I decided not to. I decided to stick with it. And um, well, I think it turned out okay. So, everyone, I hope you will enjoy this. Uh, and as per usual, go ahead and I would love to see the discussion. Um, whether I jump in on it or not, it's always really gratifying to know that I am bringing discussion to these. Not just, you know, not just uh, listening, but also like discussing it, talking about it with other folks, 
uh, trying to understand it better, because that's what we try to do here. Um, this is a chance to dive a little deeper in. And so I would love to see all of your discussion in chat. I would love to talk about it myself. Once I am no longer in the chapter, I tend not to interrupt a chapter to jump into chat. But once it's over, I would love to see what y'all are discussing. Uh, and then, of course, during the week, uh, we still have discussion going on for Harry Potter and for Percy Jackson. And the midweek discussion is something I always love to duck my head into. And I don't tend to like interrupt those, uh, but I love to see that it's there. I love to see that y'all have taken a look and wanted to wanted to dig in a little bit more. It's glorious. So, everyone, thank you very, very much for joining me. This trio of books is... It's a little on the more serious side. Um, and I think... We're going to be talking about this extensively, of course, in the future, but just be ye primed for this book to be... I think we started with Harry Potter, which I would say sort of spans some ages, and then uh, Percy Jackson, I would say, leans a little younger. I would say this one leans a little older. So, with that in mind, are y'all ready to begin? Are you all ready to begin? <sighs> Gotta get hydrated. Do some sirens. Here we go. Oh goodness. Okay, I, I I just realized in the in the hubbub trying to collect my my fonts and my new uh, theme music, which I I thought the theme music I thought was really fun because it seemed like how they would score uh, one of these events. Um, it seems like how, like if, if you were watching this on TV in universe, this is how they would sort of uh, add music onto it. So it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but I hope you like the new theme song, uh, the new font, all that's good, good stuff. Okay. Uh, but I realized in all that, I did not collect a new uh, noise to play, a, a new stinger noise. You know, we had the thunder all throughout uh, Percy Jackson. I need something for this. It's probably going to be like, something like that. Here we go, folks. Here we go. Part one, the tributes. Chapter one. When I wake up, the other side of the bed is cold. My fingers stretch out, seeking Prim's warmth, but finding only the rough canvas cover of the mattress. She must have had bad dreams and climbed in with our mother. Of course, she did. This is the day of the reaping. I prop myself up on one elbow. There's enough light in the bedroom to see them. My little sister, Prim, curled up on her side, cocooned in my mother's body, their cheeks pressed together for warmth. In sleep, my mother looks younger. Still worn out, but not so beaten down. Prim's face is as fresh as a raindrop, as lovely as the primrose for which she was named. My mother was very beautiful once, too. Or so they tell me. Sitting at Prim's knees, guarding her, is the world's ugliest cat. Smashed-in nose, half of one ear missing, eyes the color of rotting squash, Prim named him Buttercup, insisting that his muddy yellow coat matched the bright flower. 
He hates me, or at least distrusts me. Even though it was years ago, I think he still remembers how I tried to drown him in a bucket when Prim brought him home. Scrawny kitten, belly swollen with worms, crawling with fleas. The last thing I needed was another mouth to feed. But Prim begged so hard, cried even, I had to let him stay. It turned out okay. My mother got rid of the vermin, and he's a born mouser. Even catches the occasional rat. Sometimes, when I clean a kill, I feed Buttercup the entrails. He's stopped hissing at me. Entrails, no hissing. This is the closest we'll ever come to love. I swing my legs off the bed and slide into my hunting boots, supple leather that is molded to my feet. I pull on trousers, a shirt, tuck my long, dark braid up into a cap and grab my forage bag. On the table, under a wooden bowl to protect it from hungry rats and cats alike, sits a perfect little goat cheese wrapped in basil leaves. Prim's gift to me on reaping day. I put the cheese carefully in my pocket as I slip outside. Our part of District 12, nicknamed The Seam, is usually crawling with coal miners heading out to the morning shift at this hour. Men and women with hunched shoulders, swollen knuckles, many who have long since stopped trying to scrub the coal dust out of their broken nails, the lines of their sunken faces. But today, the black cinder streets are empty. Shutters on the squat gray houses are closed. The reaping isn't until two. Might as well sleep in, if you can. Our house is almost at the edge of the seam. I only have to pass a few gates to reach the scruffy field called the meadow. Separating the meadow from the woods, in fact, enclosing all of District 12, is a high chain-link fence topped with barbed wire loops. In theory, it's supposed to be electrified 24 hours a day as a deterrent to the predators that live in the woods. Packs of wild dogs, lone cougars, bears that used to threaten our streets. But since we're lucky to get two or three hours of electricity in the evenings, it's usually safe to touch. Even so, I always take a moment to listen carefully for the hum that means the fence is live. Right now, silent as a stone. Concealed by a clump of bushes, I flatten out on my belly and slide under a two-foot stretch that's been loose for years. There are several other weak spots in the fence, but this one is so close to home I almost always enter the woods here. As soon as I'm in the trees, I retrieve a bow and a sheath of arrows from hollow log. Electrified or not, the fence has been successful at keeping the flesh eaters out of District 12. Inside the woods, they roam freely, and there are added concerns like venomous snakes, rabid animals. No real paths to follow. But there's also food if you know how to find it. My father always knew, and he taught me a little before he was blown to bits in a mine explosion. There was nothing even to bury. I was eleven then. Five years later, I still wake up screaming for him to run. Even though trespassing in the woods is illegal and poaching carries the severest of penalties, more people would risk it if they had weapons. But most are not bold enough to venture out with just a knife. My bow is a rarity, crafted by my father along with a few others that I keep well hidden in the woods, carefully wrapped in waterproof covers. My father would have made good money selling them. 
but if the officials had found out, he would have been publicly executed for inciting a rebellion. Most of the peacekeepers turn a blind eye to the few of us who hunt, because they're as hungry for fresh meat as anybody is. In fact, they're among our best customers. But the fact that somebody might be arming the seam would never have been allowed. In the fall, a few brave souls sneak into the woods to harvest apples, but always inside of the meadow, always close enough to run back to the safety of District 12 if trouble arises. District 12, where you can starve to death in safety, I mutter. Then I glance quickly over my shoulder. Even here, even in the middle of nowhere, you worry someone might overhear you. When I was younger, I scared my mother to death about the things I would blurt out about District 12. About the people who rule our country, Panem, and the far-off city of the capital. Eventually, I understood that this would only lead us to more trouble. So, I learned to hold my tongue and to turn my features into an indifferent mask so that no one could ever read my thoughts. Do my work quietly in school. Make only polite small talk in the public market. Discuss little more than trades in the hob which is the black market where I make most of my money. Even at home, where I'm less pleasant, I avoid discussing tricky topics, like the reaping, or food shortages, or the hunger games. Prim might begin to repeat my words, and then where would we be? In the woods waits the only person with whom I can be myself. Gale. I can feel the muscles in my face relaxing, my pace quickening as I climb the hills to our place, a rock ledge overlooking a valley. A thicket of berry bushes protects it from unwanted eyes. The sight of him waiting there brings me a smile. Gail says I never smile except in the woods. Hey, Catnip, says Gail. My real name is Katniss, but when I first told him, I barely whispered it. So he thought I'd said catnip. <sighs> then when this crazy link started following me around the woods looking for handouts, it became his official nickname for me. I finally had to kill the lynx because he scared off the game. I almost regretted it because he wasn't bad company. But I had gotten a decent price for his pelt. Look what I shot. Gale holds up a loaf of bread with an arrow stuck in it, and I laugh. It's real bakery bread, not the flat, dense loaves we make from our grain rations. I take it in my hands, pull out the arrow, and hold the puncture to my nose, inhaling the fragrance that makes my mouth flood with saliva. Fine bread like this is for special occasions. Hmm. Still warm? I say. He must have been at the bakery at the crack of dawn to trade for it. What did it cost you? Yeah, just a squaddle. I think the old man was feeling sentimental this morning, says Gail. Even wished me luck. Well, we all feel a bit better. A little closer today, don't we? I say, not even bothering to roll my eyes. Prem left us a cheese. I pull it out. His expression brightens at the treat. Thank you, Prem. We're going to have a real feast. Suddenly, he falls into his capital accent as he mimics Effie Trinket, the maniacally upbeat woman who arrives once a year to read the names out at the reaping. Oh, I almost forgot! Happy Hunger Games! He plucks a few blackberries from the bushes around us. And may the odds! 
He tosses a berry high in an arc toward me. I catch it in my mouth and break the delicate skin with my teeth. The sweet tartness explodes across my tongue. Be ever in your favor, I finish with equal verve. We have to joke about it, because the alternative is to be scared out of your wits. Besides, the capital accent is so affected, almost anything sounds funny in it. I watch as Gale pulls out his knife and slices the bread. He could be my brother. Straight black hair, olive skin, we even have the same gray eyes. But we're not related, at least not closely. Most of the families who work the mines resemble each other in this way. That's why my mother and Prim, with their light hair and blue eyes, always look out of place. They are. My mother's parents were part of the small merchant class that caters to officials, peacekeepers, and the occasional seam customer. They ran an apothecary shop in the nicer part of District 12. Since almost no one can afford doctors, apothecaries are our healers. My father got to know my mother because on his hunts he would sometimes collect medicinal herbs and sell them to her to be brewed into medicine. She must have really loved him to leave her home for the seam. I try to remember that when all I can see is the woman who sat by, blank and unreachable, while her children turned to skin and bones. I try to forgive her for my father's sake. But to be honest, I'm not the forgiving type. Gail spreads the bread slices with the soft goat cheese, carefully placing a basil leaf on each while I strip the bushes of their berries. We settle back in a nook in the rocks. From this place, we are invisible, but we have a clear view of the valley which is teeming with summer life, greens to gather, roots to dig, fish iridescent in the sunlight. The day is glorious, with a blue sky and a soft breeze. The food is wonderful, with the cheese seeping into the warm bread and the berries bursting in our mouths. Everything would be perfect if this really was a holiday. If all the day off meant was rowing the mountains with Gale hunting for tonight's supper. But instead we have to be standing at the square at two o'clock waiting for our names to be called out. We could do it, you know, Gale says quietly. What? Leave the district. Run off. Live in the woods. You and I, we can make it, says Gale. I don't know how to respond. The idea is preposterous. If we didn't have so many kids, he adds quickly. They're not our kids, of course, but they might as well be. Gail's two little brothers and a sister, Prim. And you may as well throw in our mothers, too, because how would they live without us? Who would fill those mouths that are always asking for more? With both of us hunting daily, there are still nights when game has to be swapped for lard or shoelaces or wool, still nights when we go to bed with our stomachs growling. I never want to have kids, I say. I might, if I didn't live here, says Gail. How about you do, I say, irritated. Forget it, he snaps back. This conversation feels wrong. Leave? How could I leave Prim, who's the only person in the world I'm certain I love? And Gail is devoted to his family. We can't leave, so why bother talking about it? And even if we did, even if we did, where 
Where did this stuff about having kids come from? There's never anything romantic between Gail and me. When we met, I was a skinny 12-year-old, and although he was only two years older, he already looked like a man. It took a long time for us to even become friends, to stop haggling over every trade and begin helping each other out. Besides, if he wants kids, Gail won't have any trouble finding a wife. He's good-looking, he's strong enough to handle the work in the mines, and he can hunt. You can tell by the way the girls whisper about him when he walks by in school that they want him. It makes me jealous, but not the reason people would think. Good hunting partners are hard to find. What do you want to do? I ask. We can fish, hunt, or gather. Mmm. Let's fish at the lake. We can leave our poles and gather in the woods. Get something nice for tonight, he says. Tonight. After the reaping, everyone is supposed to celebrate. And a lot of people do, out of relief that their children will be spared for another year. But at least two families will pull their shutters, lock their doors, and try to figure out how they will survive the painful weeks to come. We make out well. The predators ignore us on a day when easier, tastier prey abounds. By late morning, we have a dozen fish, a bag of greens, and best of all, a gallon of strawberries. I found the patch a few years ago, but Gail had the idea to string mesh nets around it to keep out the animals. On the way home, we swing by the hob, the black market that operates in an abandoned warehouse that once held coal. When they came up with more efficient systems that transported the coal directly from the mines to the trains, the hob gradually took over the space. Most businesses are closed by this time on reaping day, but the black market's still fairly busy. We easily trade six of the fish for good bread, the other two for salt. Greasy Say, the bony old woman who sells bowls of hot soup from a large kettle, takes half the greens off our hands in exchange for a couple chunks of paraffin. We might do a tad better elsewhere, but we make an effort to keep on good terms with Greasy Say. She's the only one who can consistently be counted on to buy wild dog. We don't hunt them on purpose, but if you're attacked and you take out a dog or two, well, meat is meat. Once it's in the soup, I calls it beef, Greasy Say says with a wink. No one in the scene would turn up their nose at a good leg of wild dog, but the peacekeepers who come to the hob can afford to be a little choosier. When we finish our business at the market, we go to the back door of the mayor's house to sell half the strawberries, knowing he has a particular fondness for him and can afford our price. The mayor's daughter, Madge, opens the door. She's in my year at school. Being the mayor's daughter, you'd expect her to be a snob, but she's all right. She just keeps to herself, like me. Since neither of us really has a group of friends, we seem to end up together a lot at school, eating lunch, sitting next to each other at assemblies, partnering for sports and activities. We rarely talk, which suits both of us just fine. Today, her drab school outfit has been replaced by an expensive white dress, and her blonde hair is done up with a pink ribbon. Reaping clothes. Yeah, pretty dress, says Gail. Madge shoots him a look, trying to see if it's a genuine compliment or if he's just being ironic. It is a pretty dress, but she would never be wearing it ordinarily. She presses her lips together and then smiles. Well, if I end up going to the capital, I want to look nice, don't I? 
Now it's Gail's turn to be confused. Does she mean it? Or is she messing with him? I'm guessing the second. You won't be going to the capital, says Gail coolly. His eyes land on a small circular pin that adorns her dress. Real gold. Beautifully crafted. It could keep a family in bread for months. What can you have? Five entries? I had six when I was just twelve years old. That's not her fault, I say. No, it's no one's fault. It's just the way it is, says Gail. Madge's face has become closed off. She puts the money for the berries in my hand. Good luck, Katniss. Yep, you too, I say. And the door closes. We walk toward the seam in silence. I don't like that Gale took a dig at Madge, but he's right, of course. The reaping system is unfair, with the poor getting the worst of it. You become eligible for the reaping the day you turn 12. That year, your name is entered once. At 13, twice. And so on, and so on, till you reach the age of 18, and the final year of eligibility when your name goes in the pool seven times. That's true for every citizen in all 12 districts in the entire country of Pan Am. But here's the catch. Say you're poor and starving, as we were. You can opt to add your name more times in exchange for tesserae. Each tesserae is worth a meager year's supply of grain and oil for one person. You may do this for each of your family members as well. So, by the age of twelve, I had my name entered four times. Once because I had to, and three times for tesserae, for grain and oil for myself, Prim, and my mother. In fact, every year I've needed to do this. And the entries are cumulative. So now, at the age of 16, my name will be in the reaping 20 times. Gale, who's 18 and has been either helping or single-handedly feeding his family of five for seven years, he'll have his name in 42 times. You can see why someone like Madge, who's never been at risk of needing a tesera, can set him off. The chance of her name being drawn is very slim compared to those of us who live in the seam. Not impossible, but slim. And even though the rules were set up by the capital, not the districts, certainly not Madge's family, it's hard not to resent those who don't have to sign up for Tesserae. Gil knows his anger at Madge is misdirected. On other days, deep in the woods, I've listened to him rant about how the Tesserae are just another tool to cause misery in our district a way to plant hatred between the starving workers of the seam and those who can generally count on supper and thereby ensure we will never trust one another. It's to the capital's advantage if we divide ourselves, he might say if there were no one around to hear him but me. If it wasn't reaping day. If a girl with a gold pin and no tesserae had not made what I'm sure she thought was a harmless comment. As we walk, I glance over at Gale's face, still smoldering underneath his stony expression. His rages seem pointless to me, although I never say so. It's not that I don't agree with him, I do, but what good is yelling about the capital in the middle of the woods? It doesn't change anything. It doesn't make things fair. It doesn't fill our stomachs. In fact, it scares off the nearby game. I let him yell, though. Better he does it in the woods than in the district. 
Gail and I divide our spoils, leaving two fish, a couple of loaves of good bread, greens, a quart of strawberries, salt, paraffin, and a bit of money for each. I'll see you at the square, I say. Wear something pretty, he says flatly. At home, I find my mother and sister are ready to go. My mother wears a fine dress from her apothecary days. Prim is in my first reaping outfit, a skirt and ruffled blouse. It's a bit big on her, but my mother's made it stay with pins. Even so, she's having trouble keeping the blouse tucked in at the back. A tub of warm water waits for me. I scrub off the dirt and sweat from the woods and even wash my hair. To my surprise, my mother has laid out one of her own lovely dresses for me. A soft blue thing with matching shoes. Are you sure? I ask. I'm trying to get past rejecting offers of help from her. For a while, I was so angry I wouldn't allow her to do anything for me. And this is something special. Her clothes from her past are very precious to her. Of course. Let's put your hair up, too, she says. I let her towel dry it and braid it up on my head. I can hardly recognize myself in the cracked mirror that leans against the wall. You look beautiful, says Prim in a hushed voice. And nothing like myself, I say. I hug her because I know these next few hours will be terrible for her. Her first reaping. She's about as safe as you can get, since she's only entered once. I wouldn't let her take out any tesserae. But she's worried about me. That the unthinkable might happen. I protect Prim in every way I can but I'm powerless against the reaping. The anguish I always feel when she's in pain wells up in my chest and threatens to register on my face. I notice her blouse is pulled out of her skirt and the back again and force myself to stay calm. Tuck in your tail, little duck, I say, smoothing the blouse back into place. Prim giggles and gives me a small... Quack! Now quack yourself, I say with a light laugh the kind only Prim can draw out of me. Come on, let's eat. I plant a quick kiss on the top of her head. The fish and greens are already cooking in a stew, but that will be for supper. We decide to save the strawberries and bakery bread for this evening's meal to make it special, we say. Instead, we drink milk from Prim's goat, Lady, and eat the rough bread made from the tessera grain, though no one has much appetite anyway. At one o'clock, we head for the square. Attendance is mandatory unless you are on death's door. This evening, officials will come around and check to see if this is the case. If not, you'll be imprisoned. It's too bad, really, that they hold the reaping in the square. One of the few places in District 12 that can be pleasant. The square is surrounded by shops and on public market days, especially if there's good weather, it has a holiday feel to it. But today, despite the bright banners hanging on the buildings, there's an air of grimness. The camera crews, perched like buzzards on the rooftops, only add to the effect. People file in silently and sign in. The reaping is a good opportunity for the capital to keep tabs on the population as well. Twelve to eighteen-year-olds are herded into roped areas marked off by ages. 
the oldest in front, the young ones like Prim, toward the back. Family members line up around the perimeter, holding tightly under one another's hands. But there are others, too, who have no one they love at stake, or who no longer care, who slip among the crowd, taking bets on the two kids whose names will be drawn. Odds are given on their ages, whether they're seam or merchant, if they'll break down and weep. Most refuse dealing with the racketeers, but carefully, carefully. These are the same people who tend to be informers, and who hasn't broken the law. I could be shot on a daily basis for hunting, but the appetites of those in charge protect me. Not everyone can claim the same. Anyway, Gail and I agree that if we have to choose between dying of hunger and a bullet in the head, the bullet's quicker. The space gets tighter, more claustrophobic as people arrive. The square is quite large, but not enough to hold District 12's population of about 8,000. Latecomers are directed to the adjacent streets where they can watch the event on screens as it's televised live by the state. I find myself standing in a clump of sixteens from the seam. We all exchange terse nods, then focus our attention on the temporary stage that's set up before the Justice Building. It holds three chairs, a podium, and two large glass balls, one for boys, one for girls. I stare at the paper slips in the girls' ball. Twenty of them have Katniss Everdeen written on them in careful handwriting. Two of the three chairs fill with Madge's father, Mayor Undersea, who's tall, balding, and Effie Trinket, District 12's escort, fresh from the capital with her scary white grin, pinkish hair, and spring green suit. They murmur to each other and then look with concern at the empty seat. Just as the town clock strikes two, the mayor steps up to the podium and begins to read. It's the same story every year. He tells the history of Panem, the country that rose up out of the ashes of a place that was once called North America. He lists the disasters, the droughts, the storms, the fires, the encroaching seas that swallowed up so much of the land, the brutal war for what little sustenance remained. The result was Panem, a shining capital ringed by thirteen districts which brought peace and prosperity to its citizens. Then came the dark days, the uprisings of the districts against the capital. Twelve were defeated, the thirteenth obliterated. The Treaty of Treason gave us the new laws to guarantee peace, and as our yearly reminder that the dark days must never be repeated, it gave us the Hunger Games. The rules of the Hunger Games are simple. In punishment for the uprising, each of the twelve districts must provide one boy and one girl, called tributes, to participate. The twenty-four tributes will be imprisoned in a vast outdoor arena that could hold anything from a burning desert to a frozen wasteland. Over a period of several weeks, the competitors must fight to the death. The last tribute standing wins. Taking the kids from our districts forcing them to kill one another while we watch. This is the capital's way of reminding us how totally we are at their mercy. How little chance we would have of surviving another rebellion. Whatever words they use, the real message is clear. 
Look how we take your children and sacrifice them, and there's nothing you can do. If you lift a finger, we will destroy every last one of you, just as we did in District 13. To make it humiliating as well as torturous, the capital requires us to treat the Hunger Games as a festivity, a sporting event pitting every district against the others. The last tribute alive receives a life of ease back home, and their district will be showered with prizes, largely consisting of food. All year, the capital will show the winning district gifts of oil and grain and even delicacies like sugar, while the rest of us battle starvation. It is time for repentance and time for thanks, intones the mayor. Then he reads the list of past District 12 victors. In 74 years, we have had exactly two. Only one is still alive. Hamish Abernathy, a paunchy, middle-aged man who at this moment appears hollering something unintelligible, staggers into the stage and falls into the third chair. He's drunk. Very. The crowd responds with its token applause, but... He's confused and tries to give Effie Trinket a big hug, which she barely manages to fend off. The mayor looks distressed. Since all of this is being televised, right now District 12 is the laughing stock of Pan Am. And he knows it. He quickly tries to pull the attention back to the reaping by introducing Effie Trinket. Bright and bubbly as ever, Effie Trinket trots to the podium and gives her signature... Happy Hunger Games, and may the odds be ever in your favor. Her pink hair must be a wig because her curls have shifted slightly off-center since her encounter with Amich. She goes on a bit about what an honor it is to be here, although everyone knows she's just aching to get bumped up to a better district, where they have proper victors, not drunks who molest you in front of the entire nation. Through the crowd, I spot Gail looking back at me with a ghost of a smile. As reapings go, this one at least has a slight entertainment factor. But suddenly I'm thinking of Gale and his 42 names in that big glass ball, and how the odds are not in his favor, not compared to a lot of the boys. And maybe he's thinking the same thing about me because his face darkens and turns away. But there are still thousands of slips. I wish I could whisper to him. It's time for the drawing. Effie Trinket says, as she always does, Ladies first! And crosses to the glass ball with the girls' names. She reaches in, digs her hand deep into the ball, and pulls out a slip of paper. The crowd draws a collective breath. and You can hear a pin drop. And I'm feeling nauseous and so desperately hoping that it's not me. That it's not me. That it's not me. Effie Trinket crosses back to the podium, smooths the slip of paper, and reads out the name in a clear voice. And it's not me. It's Primrose Everdeen. And there we have the end of our first chapter of the evening. Now, I don't know how y'all are feeling. Is it is it warm in here or is it just me? Is, is it just me? Just me in this uh, 
suit jacket and uh, <laughs> rodeo clown slash, uh, I guess, what, marching uh, uniform? Is it just me or is it is it warm in here? I think I'm going to change. I think I'm just going to just going to loosen up a little bit here after our first chapter. Hey, folks. Bah, what do you think? Van says, this is the coolest you've ever looked, Sam, and you know it. I, I guess I mean, what do you think more about the chapter itself? <laughs> Let's see. I mean, y'all know I'm not going to just go in a... I'm not just going to hang out here in a t-shirt, right? You know, that's not, that's not me. That's not who I am. <sighs> this is the stream shirt, by the way. Some of y'all might know that already, but some of y'all may not. This is the stream shirt. This is the one that kicked it all off. Everyone, today, two more chapters yet to come. Uh, I want to say hello and thank you for joining us to Gertie, MMP, UU, Empress K, Amberina, Big Mama, and 100% Slytherin over in Discord. Uh, and then, of course, all of you folks who have been joining me for such a long time. Um, all of you who have come to hang out during our first chapter. Jesper, Louise, Gwendog, Dahlia. Van, Neens, Gems, Neens, Dahlia, Van. <laughs> hey, uh, let's see, Carzy Lizard. Oh, Carzy, hey, it's been a little bit. Hi, Carzy. Everyone, I hope you have enjoyed this far. Um, I want to discuss this a very little bit, um, and then I think I'm going to take my break after this chapter as opposed to the next one, because the first chapter was about 5,200 words. The next two combined are about uh, 7,400 words. So... I'm about to go take my break, so I'm going to leave you all with a little chatter break question, as we like to do. And y'all, I want to see you discussing it in chat, and then when I come back, I'm going to join the discussion. We're going to talk about it for a little bit, and then I'll be back. We are going to uh, do a very quick review, and then we're going to read our next chapters. So, a quick break. Like, I usually take it later on in the stream, but at this particular one, this first chapter, as a lot of initial chapters are, it's a long one. So, I'm going to go take a quick break. My, my first question is, what do we know about this place? Um, where do we think that we are, uh, <laughs> and, and mostly this is in relation to Katniss, because y'all know how I like to be. I, I love to discuss this in terms of the characters especially, but all over the place, up and down. Uh, I love talking about this stuff in general. So, uh, we've got this setting here, right? Our setting's important. We can see the ways that uh, that Katniss has sort of reacted to um, reacted to this setting. How has she reacted in order to survive here? And so that is what I want to know from y'all. What are the things you're seeing? What are the things we're going to see coming up? What things do we think are going to help her or hurt her in the future that we know is coming? So that's my question. How has this setting developed Katniss Everdeen? There it is. I'll be gone for five minutes, and then I will be back, and we're going to continue to read. We've got two more chapters left to go tonight. I will see you all in five. Goodbye. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Shoot, I was so close. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if it sounded the same for y'all. I was like, ooh, ooh. Oh, the, the music's ending. It's ending right now. Go, 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 go. I can end it right now and it'll sound perfect. Because I, I wanted to get in there before the big, like, and then I think I might have missed it. Um, 
Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe on your end it sounded fine. But on my end, I just, eh, I just barely missed it. I was so close. <sighs> How y'all feeling? You feel good? Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, I am seeing some excellent discussion up in chat. Let's talk about it. Okay, the question was for our chatter break, uh, as we like to do, how do we think that this setting has impacted and developed Katniss Everdeen? And we got some good answers in here. Van Saves Live says, The fact that Katniss and Gale are clearly painted as much more mature than, you know, they should be at this age, uh, it's a great way to show what the environment has done to these people. Yes, absolutely. We can see some of these ways that uh, that this this setting has developed them really specifically. Um, Pavia says, The way it sounds like she's been through hell. I mean, this has probably shaped her into someone who can deal with the stress that this world brings on. It does sound that way. Uh, you know, we see this in... Um, the way that she talks about things that we would normally like uh, either disregard or think of as like uh, soft, for instance, uh, you know, when she talks about how she was sad that she had to kill that lynx that had been following her around, right? She, it's been scaring the game away. She had to kill it. This is like kind of, it, it was decent companionship, but she had to kill it. And she talks about how at least she got decent money for the pelt. This is kind of the world that she lives in, where even the most comfortable things, you have to be able to put a price on them, um, which is a terrible way to live. Uh, you know, the, consider how you live, and, and hopefully you are not in this situation. And if you are, um, you absolutely have my sympathy. But, you know, the, the situations in which uh, I, I think this is one of the things that poverty can do to people is that you, you have to be able to put a, a price on things, even things that make you comfortable or happy. Van Saves Live says, uh, uh, never mind, I already read that one. Um, keep going down a little bit. Let's see, Jem says, uh, now, has this scene set up the development for Katniss? <laughs> ah, yes. Try not to settle this with, or try not to answer with spoilers. Indeed, I appreciate that. Uh, Van says, the way that Katniss also seems to resent her mother tells you more than uh, actually showing her do anything bad. It does seem like there is something significant going on here. Um, uh, something for which... Katniss feels like she is supposed to forgive her mother, but can't do so. Um, we're going to have to find out what all this means. What is that regarding? Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Um, uh, Rollet says, I totally agree with you, Van. Uh, also, that they praise uh, a real and live event based around people killing each other for glory and perks. Yes, it has. Uh, that, that's one of the, 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 that's one of the, I think, important things that this series talks about, which is that this is not just a terrible world, right? This is not just, this is not simply a world uh, with terrible things going on in it. It is a terrible world that people have come to accept as the norm or as acceptable. You know, cheering for, cheering for and reveling in uh, things that are clearly uh, morally bankrupt, right? Uh, things that are clearly absolutely wrong. The things that cause suffering and perpetuate suffering. These things are uh, uh, just objectively wrong. Jem says this shows Katniss has already faced much tragedy in her, uh, but but her in her life. But her one little hope is her sister Prim. Now with this blasted, hated Hunger Games that has made her so bitter, it flaunts its finger in her face and tries to claim her tiny happiness. I'll go bat crazy in her shoes. <laughs> 
Well, let's see what sort of uh, crazy thing someone has to do in this situation. Orly Rose says, I also think it's going to be a hardcore challenge uh, for Katniss. I think having to face all that she already has, coupled with the nature of the games, basically is going to mean there are hard decisions and weighty matters throughout the book. And this is not going to be a lighthearted comedy uh, or relief. Yeah, it, I think that, that touches on something that we're going to sort of discover throughout much of this is that, you know, even... And I don't think this is spoilers because they talk about it in terms of the victors of these games. At, even in victory, it's not that there is peace or comfort. Yes, there are prizes, but but even in victory, there's no winning. Not really. Neen says, I missed the very beginning and forget if they talked about the shared experience of loss uh, that connects her to Gail, but Katniss and Gail are both oldest siblings, and clearly they take a lot of this responsibility for caring for everyone else. And their important skills for foraging and hunting are really important skills, I imagine, for what it was... Uh, excuse me. Important skills, I imagine, for what's to come. I could barely get through that, Neens. Not because it was your fault, just because I couldn't read it properly. Neens, you did that <laughs> entirely properly, and yet... And yet, gave it the old Sam touch. Um, absolutely. They are, I mean, from what we know about the games... Uh, the hunting seems like it could well be a big deal. Um, uh, if this is not your first experience with a battle royale style of competition, um, I think, uh, yeah, you could imagine that this sort of prowling, it's going to be a skill that is helpful. Not the only one, but a skill that could be very helpful. Um, uh, let's see. Van pops in saying, also knowing that each district has two reps, but the whole thing has one winner means that even the winning district loses someone. The prize still comes at a cost. No way to truly win as a person or a district. And I think that is super important. Van, I think that's super important. The The structure here is set up to say, look, you'll have a winner, right? Somebody's going to have a winner. Somebody wins in all of this, right? That That is the that is the idea that's supposed to make the whole thing palatable. That's the, that's the concept that is supposed to make this an acceptable part of the world, right? But clearly, nobody wins. Nobody wins. No district wins this. Someone is going to... Everyone loses someone. One district simply loses one person instead of two. And with how it seems to be going out here in the districts, it doesn't seem like they can afford that. If, if, uh, if Gale indeed is chosen as the male candidate here, um, his family is going to starve. It's not like it's not like there are other families doing great here. He's the only one struggling, and so someone else can take in his siblings. He's barely holding on with them, and so if he gets chosen, you know, it's the, I mean, there's a good chance they'll starve just while he's gone, right? We don't know yet how long these games are going to be, but we know it's not a good thing here. There's no there's no real way to win, even the ways in which this has. This, this has tried to be painted as palatable or as acceptable in some way. Even that is false. Pavia says, it seems like she's had to go through a bunch of hardships and she's only wanted to be there for her family. And now Prim is up, Prim is up in the mix and has made her feel like she has hit the bottom. Uh, this weight to endure at uh, this age is nuts. Absolutely. Uh, Pavia, yes, this whole thing is... I mean, it's it's... Nuts. Now, this is why we're following this particular protagonist, of course. Um, it would be interesting to see how other people sort of feel about all of this. And I think JCA brings up an excellent point. This is the perspective that's going to be really, really interesting. Hamish. How he's dealing with being a winner 
drunk on stage, right? That that's how he's dealing with being a victor in all this. He's he's just he's drunk, stumbling around. There's no no sense of th- that he's you know able to celebrate this day as a good thing, right? So whatever life this bought for him, being a champion of some games in the past, it's not a good one. So there we go. Everybody, thank you very much for joining me here. That is our little bit of discussion that we're going to do. Let's do a tiny bit of review. We are catching up here with Katniss Everdeen. Um, she is a, um, a 16-year-old girl who is a member of District 12, which seems to be primarily coal mining based. She is not much of a miner, but it sounds like her her hunting skills get her by. She has a younger sister named Prim, um, a mother who seems to be not not entirely sort of present, um, and then a father who is totally not present because it sounds like he was killed uh, long ago. Um, she hunts some with her friend Gail, and they discuss the nature of of things and why today is an important day. Not a good day, but an important one. Uh, today is the reaping. Uh, this is when the uh, one male and one female will be chosen from each district to uh, represent the district as tributes. These tributes will go to the Hunger Games, in which all of them are going to fight one another to the death. Things don't look very good for Gale or for Katniss. Uh, Katniss being, of course, our protagonist. I don't know if I said the name already. Um, they don't look good for this this uh, couple of friends here. Um, they've had to accept more entries into the drawing here uh, in order to get food for their families throughout the year. They've done so, but it's put their name in this bucket a lot of times. And when the name is drawn, of course, it's more cruel than that. Uh, The name that is drawn out is Katniss's younger sister, Prim. Primrose Everdeen. That is where we're at. I'm going to hold for sound for a second because it sounds like there might be a small plane landing in the parking lot next door. Um, just, uh, Just the fun of, you know, living in Southern California. Yep, small airplane, fresh in from Alaska, one of those little bush hopping planes. I, that's not what they're called, is it? Uh, bush, they're just called, are they just called bushcraft? Excellent. Oh, cool, yeah, there's a chainsaw competition. Uh, let's see. America's Best Lumberjack, cool. Oh, this, it's a blender showcase, fantastic. There we go. Now we are ready to read. One time, when I was in a blind in a tree, waiting motionless for game to wander by, I dozed off and fell ten feet to the ground, landing on my back. It was as if the impact had knocked every wisp of air from my lungs, and I lay there, struggling to inhale to exhale, to do anything. That's how I feel now. Trying to remember how to breathe. Unable to speak, totally stunned as the name bounces around the inside of my skull. Someone is gripping my arm. A boy from the seam, and I think maybe I started to fall and he caught me. There must have been some mistake. This can't be happening. Prim was one slip of paper in thousands. Her chances of being chosen are so remote, I didn't even have to worry about her. Hadn't I done everything? 
taken the Tesserae, refused to let her do the same. One slip, one slip in thousands. The odds had been entirely in her favor. But it hadn't mattered. Somewhere far away, I can hear the crowd murmuring unhappily, as they always do, when a twelve-year-old gets chosen because no one thinks this is fair. And then I see her, the blood draining from her face, hands clenched in fists at her sides, walking with stiff, small steps up toward the stage, passing me. I see the back of her blouse has become untucked and hangs out over her skirt. It's this detail, the untucked blouse forming a ducktail that brings me back to myself. Prim! A strangled cry comes out of my throat and my muscles begin to move again. Prim! I don't need to shove through the crowd. The other kids make way, immediately allowing me a straight path to the stage. I reach her just as she's about to mount the steps. With one sweep of my arm, I push her behind me. I volunteer! <sighs> I gasp. I volunteer as tribute! There's some confusion on the stage. District 12 hasn't had a volunteer in decades, and the protocol has become rusty. The rule is, once a tribute's name has been pulled from the ball, another eligible boy, if a boy's name has been read, or a girl, if a girl's name has been read, can step forward to take his or her place. In some districts, in which winning the reaping is such a great honor, people are eager to risk their lives. The volunteering is complicated. But in District 12, where the word tribute is pretty much synonymous with the word corpse, Volunteers are all but extinct. Lovely, says Effie Trinket. Man, I believe there's a small matter of introducing the reaping winner and then asking for volunteers. And if one does come forward, when we, um... She trails off, unsure of herself. What does it matter? Asks the mayor. He's looking at me with a pained expression on his face. He doesn't know me, really, but there's a faint recognition there. I am the girl who brings the strawberries. The girl his daughter might have spoken of on occasion. The girl who five years ago stood huddled with her mother and sister as he presented her, the oldest child, with a medal of valor. A medal for her father, vaporized in the mines. Does he remember that? What does it matter? He repeats gruffly. Let her come forward. Prim is screaming hysterically behind me. She's wrapped her skinny arms around me like a vice. No! No, Katniss, you can't! You can't go! Prim! Prim! Let go! I say harshly, because this is upsetting me and I don't want to cry. When they televise the replay of the reapings tonight, everyone will take note of my tears and I'll be marked as an easy target, a weakling. I will give no one that satisfaction. Let go! I can feel someone pulling her from my back. I turn and see Gale has lifted Prim off the ground and she's thrashing in his arms. Hope you go, Catnip, he says, in a voice he's fighting to keep steady. And then he carries Prim off toward my mother. I steel myself and climb the steps. Well, bravo! Gushes Effie Trinket. That's the spirit of the games. She's pleased to finally have a district with a little action going on in it. What's your name? 
I swallow hard. Captain Severdeen, I say. I bet my buttons that was your sister. Don't want her to steal all the glory, do we? Come on, everybody, let's give a big round of applause to our newest tribute. Thrills Effie Trinket. To the everlasting credit of the people of District 12, not one person claps. Not even the ones holding betting slips, the ones who are usually beyond caring. Possibly because they know me from the hob, or knew my father, or have encountered Prim, who no one can help loving. So instead of acknowledging applause, I stand there unmoving, while they take part in the boldest form of dissent they can manage. Silence. Which says, we do not agree. We do not condone. All of this is wrong. Then something unexpected happens. At least, I don't expect it, because I don't think of District 12 as a place that cares about me. But a shift has occurred since I stepped up to take Prim's place, and now it seems I've become someone precious. At first one, then another, then almost every member of the crowd touches the three middle fingers of their left hand to their lips and holds it out to me. It is an old and rarely used gesture of our district, occasionally seen at funerals. It means thanks. It means admiration. It means goodbye to someone you love. Now I'm truly in danger of crying, but fortunately, Haymitch chooses this time to come staggering across the stage to congratulate me. Hey, look at her! Hey, look at this one! He hollers, throwing an arm around my shoulders. He's surprisingly strong for such a wreck. <laughs> I like her! His breath reeks of liquor, and it's been a long time since he's bathed. Hey, girl, watch it! He can't think of the word for a while. Spunk! He says triumphantly. More than you! He releases me and starts for the front of the stage. And more than you! He shouts, pointing directly into a camera. Is he addressing the audience, or is he so drunk he might actually be taunting the capital? I'll never know, because just as he's opening his mouth to continue, Hamish plummets off the stage and knocks himself unconscious. He's disgusting, but I'm grateful. With every camera gleefully trained on him, I have just enough time to release the small, choked sound in my throat and compose myself. I put my hands behind my back and stare into the distance. I can see the hills I climbed this morning with Gale. For a moment, I yearn for something. The idea of us leaving the district making our way into the woods. But I know I was right about not running off. Because who else would have volunteered for Prim? Haymitch is whisked away on a stretcher, and Effie Trinket is trying to get the ball rolling again. Oh, what an exciting day! She warbles, but she attempts to straighten her wig, which is listed severely to the right. But 
more excitement to come. It's time to choose our boy tribute. Clearly hoping to contain her tenuous hair situation, she plants one hand on her head as she crosses to the ball that contains the boys' names and grabs the first slip she encounters. She zips back to the podium, and I don't even have time to wish for Gail's safety as she's reading the name. Peter Malark. Peter Malark? Oh, no, I think. Not him. Because I recognize this name, although I've never directly spoken to its owner. Peter Malark. No, the odds are not in my favor today. I watch him as he makes his way toward the stage. Medium height, stocky build, ashy blonde hair that falls in waves over his forehead. The shock of the moment is registering on his face, and you can see his struggle to remain emotionless. But his blue eyes show the alarm I've seen so often in prey. Yet he climbs steadily to the stage and takes his place. Effie Trinket asks for volunteers, but no one steps forward. He has two older brothers, I know. I've seen them in the bakery. But one is probably too old now to volunteer, and the other won't. This is standard. Family devotion only goes so far for most people on Reaping Day. What I did was the radical thing. The mayor begins to read the long, dull Treaty of Treason, as he does every year at this point. It's required, but I'm not listening to a word. Why him, I think? Then I try to convince myself it doesn't matter. Peter Malark and I are not friends. We're not even neighbors. We don't speak. Our only real interaction happened years ago. He's probably forgotten about it. But I haven't, and I know I never will. It was during the worst time. My father had been killed in the mine accidents three months earlier in the bitterest January anyone could remember. The numbness of his loss had passed, and the pain would hit me out of nowhere, doubling me over, racking my body with sobs. Where are you? I would cry out in my mind. Where have you gone? Of course, there was never any answer. The district had given us a small amount of money as compensation for his death. Enough to cover one month of grieving, at which time my mother would be expected to get a job. Only she didn't. She didn't do anything but sit propped up in a chair, or more often huddled under the blanket on her bed, eyes fixed on some point in the distance. Once in a while she'd get up, stirred by some urgent purpose, only then to collapse back into stillness. No amount of pleading from Prim seemed to affect her. I was terrified. I suppose now that my mother was locked in some dark world of sadness, but at the time all I knew was that I had lost not only my father, but a mother as well. At eleven years old, with Prim just seven, I took over as head of the family. There was no choice. I bought our food at the market and cooked it as best I could, and tried to keep Prim and myself looking presentable. 
because if it had become known that my mother could no longer care for us, the district would have taken us away from her and placed us in a community home. I'd grown up seeing those kids at school. The sadness, the marks of angry hands on their faces, the hopelessness that curled their shoulders forward. I could never let that happen to Prim. Sweet, tiny Prim, who cried when I cried, before she even knew the reason, who brushed and plaited my mother's hair before we left for school, who still polished my father's shaving mirror each night because he'd hated the layer of coal dust that settled on everything in the seam. The community home would crush her like a bug. So I kept our predicament a secret. But the money ran out, and we were slowly starving to death. There's no other way to put it. I kept telling myself I could only hold on until May. If I could just hold on until May 8th, I would turn 12 and be able to sign up for the Tezera and get that precious grain and oil to feed us. Only there were several weeks still to go. We could be well dead by then. Starvation's not an uncommon fate in District 12. Who hasn't seen the victims? Older people who can't work, children from a family with too many mouths to feed, those injured in the mines, straggling through the streets. And one day you come upon them sitting motionless against a wall or lying in the meadow. You hear the wails from a house and the peacekeepers are called to retrieve the body. Starvation is never the cause of death officially. It's always the flu or exposure or pneumonia. But that fools no one. On the afternoon of my encounter with Peter Malark, the rain was falling in relentless icy sheets. I'd been in town trying to trade some threadbare old baby clothes of prims in the public market, but there were no takers. Although I had been to the hob on several occasions with my father, I was too frightened to venture into that rough, gritty place alone. The rain had soaked through my father's hunting jacket, leaving me chilled to the bone. For three days, we'd had nothing but boiled water with some old dried mint leaves I'd found in the back of a cupboard. By the time the market closed, I was shaking so hard, I dropped my bundle of baby clothes in a mud puddle. I didn't pick it up for fear I would keel over and be unable to regain my feet. Besides, no one wanted those clothes. I couldn't go home. Because at home was my mother with her dead eyes and my little sister with her hollow cheeks and cracked lips. I couldn't walk into that room with the smoky fire from the damp branches I had scavenged at the edge of the woods after the coal had run out, my bands empty of any hope. I found myself stumbling along a muddy lane behind the shops that served the wealthiest townspeople. The merchants live above their businesses, so I was essentially in their backyards. I remember the outlines of garden beds, not yet planted for spring. A goat or two in a pen, one sodden dog tied to a post, hunched, defeated in the muck. All forms of stealing are forbidden in District 12, punishable by death. But it crossed my mind that there might be something in the trash bins, and those were fair game. Perhaps a bone at the butcher's or rotted vegetables at the grocer's, something no one but my family was desperate enough to eat. Unfortunately, the bins had just been emptied. 
When I passed the baker's, the smell of fresh bread was so overwhelming I felt dizzy. The ovens were in the back, and a golden glow spilled out to the open kitchen door. I stood mesmerized by the heat and the luscious scent until the rain interfered, running its icy fingers down my back, forcing me back to life. I lifted the lid to the baker's trash bin and found it spotlessly, heartlessly bare. Suddenly a voice was screaming at me, and I looked up to see the baker's wife, telling me to move on. And did I want her to call the peacekeepers, and how sick she was of having these brats from the seam pawing through her trash. The words were ugly, and I had no defense. As I carefully replaced the bin and backed away, I noticed him. A boy with blonde hair peering out from behind his mother's back. I'd seen him at school. He was in my year, but I didn't know his name. He stuck with the town kids, so how would I? His mother went back into the bakery, grumbling, but he must have been watching me as I made my way behind the pen that held their pig and leaned against the far side of an old apple tree. The realization that I had nothing to take home had finally sunk in. My knees buckled and I slid around the tree to its roots. It was too much. I was too sick and weak and tired. So tired. Let them call the peacekeepers and take us to the community home, I thought. Or better yet, let me die right here in the rain. There was a clatter in the bakery and I heard the woman screaming again and the sound of a blow, and I vaguely wondered what was going on. Feet sloshed toward me through the mud, and I thought, It's her! She's coming to drive me away with a stick! But it wasn't her. It was the boy. In his arms, he carried two large loaves of bread that must have fallen into the fire because the crusts were scorched black. His mother was yelling, Feed it to the pig, you stupid creature! Why not?! No one decent's gonna buy burned bread! He began to tear off chunks from the burned parts and toss them into the trough, and the mother disappeared in to help a customer. The boy never glanced my way, but I was watching him. Because of the bread, because of the red wheel that stood out on his cheekbone. What did she hit him with? My parents never hit us, I couldn't even imagine it. The boy took one look back to the bakery as if checking that the coast was clear. Then, his attention back on the pig, he threw a loaf of bread in my direction. The second quickly followed, and he sloshed back to the bakery, closing the kitchen door tightly behind him. I stared at the loaves in disbelief. They were fine. Perfect, really, except for the burned areas. Did he mean for me to have them? He must have, because they were at my feet. Before anyone could witness what had happened, I shoved the loaves up underneath my skirt, wrapped the hunting jacket tightly around me, and walked swiftly away. The heat of the bread burned my skin, but I clutched it tighter, clinging to life. By the time I reached home, the loaves had cooled somewhat, but the insides were still warm. When I dropped them on the table, Prim's hands reached to tear off a chunk, but I made her sit, forced my mother to join us at the table, and poured warm tea. 
I scraped off the black stuff and sliced the bread. We ate an entire loaf, slice by slice. It was good, hearty bread, filled with raisins and nuts. I put my clothes to dry the fire, curled into bed, and fell into a dreamless sleep. It didn't occur to me until the next morning that the boy might have burned the loaves on purpose, might have dropped the loaves into the flames, knowing it meant being punished, and then delivered them to me. But I dismissed this. It must have been an accident. Why would he have done it? He didn't even know me. Still, just throwing me the bread was an enormous kindness that would surely result in a beating if discovered. I couldn't explain his actions. We ate slices of bread for breakfast and headed to school. It was as if spring had come overnight. Warm, sweet air, fluffy clouds. At school, I passed the boy in the hall. His cheek had swelled up and his eye had blackened. He was with his friends and didn't acknowledge me in any way. But as I collected Prim and started for home that afternoon, I found him staring at me from across the schoolyard. Our eyes met for only a second, then he turned his head away. I dropped my gaze, embarrassed, and that's when I saw it. The first dandelion of the year. A bell went off in my head. I thought of the hours spent in the woods with my father, and I knew how we were going to survive. To this day, I can never shake the connection between this boy, Peter Malark, and the bread that gave me hope, and the dandelion that reminded me that I was not doomed. And more than once, I've turned in the school hallway and caught his eyes trained on me, only to quickly flit away. I feel like I owe him something, and I hate owing people. Maybe if I had thanked him at some point, I'd be feeling less conflicted now. I thought about it a couple of times, but the opportunity never seemed to present itself. And now it never will. Because we're going to be thrown into an arena and fight to the death. How exactly am I supposed to work in a thank you there? Somehow it just won't seem sincere if I'm trying to slit his throat. The mayor finishes the dreary treaty of treason and motions for Peter and me to shake hands. His are solid and warm as those loaves of bread. Peter looks me right in the eye and gives my hand what I think is meant to be a reassuring squeeze. Maybe it's just a nervous spasm. We turn back to face the crowd as the anthem of Pan Am plays. Oh well, I think. There will be twenty-four of us. Odds are someone else will kill him before I do. Of course, the odds have not been very dependable of late. That's it for this chapter. No five-minute break this time. We are cruising right on through. I am going to present you with a chatter break question, but we can talk about it later. I'm going to just keep cruising right on through into our third chapter here. A chatter break question for you all. Hold on. Let me hydrate real quick. Got to stay hydrated. And don't forget, anyone who's joining us for the first time, Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, don't forget to follow if you like this sort of thing, because we do this every Thursday. This is Thursday, which means Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. 
Um, on Tuesdays, although there's a bit of a hiatus right now, we do Vintage Sidecar, Classic Lit. Um, uh, I should say Shedding Some Light on Classic Lit. Uh, I got to tagline everything. It's got to be done. Um, we have done The Great Gatsby and Frankenstein and all sorts of great classic literature and talked about them extensively. Tons of fun. It is on a hiatus right now, but you should be able to start to find those uh, over on Spotify under the title Vintage Sidecar. Finally, on Wednesdays, our Side Cannons! the tabletop wing of our uh, uh, little storytelling adventure here. We do uh, tabletop RPGs. Right now, we're doing some uh, world building, and it's a ton of fun. Uh, we use uh, some fun dice tools. I am writing a tabletop RPG called Silver Bullet, and I do hope that you will go check those out. This is what we do here. This is Sidecar Stories. This is a channel that celebrates stories, and I enjoy telling them to you. I enjoy telling them with you. All right. Okay, eh, <clears throat> so, chatterbait question, and then, like I said, we're not going to talk about this. Y'all can talk about it. I'm going to go straight into the chapter. Um, uh, Sparkle Lovegood is wondering when Tuesday start up again. I'm not sure yet. Um, that's going to depend on how fast the editing goes for some of the classic stuff. I, have, I just have to get it uploaded. Um, I'm not, frankly, I'm not even going to edit much of it. I'm just going to get it uploaded so that uh, uh, we can continue. Um, and Sparkle Lovegood says, when do we vote for the next book? A great question. I will make sure to uh, notify people with the vintage sidecar tag over in Discord. And of course, that's the last bit of announcements uh, I'll make. I'm going to put the links in right now. But of course, you can use the links command at any time in chat and you can pop up the link. Sidecar, uh, excuse me, linktree slash sidecar stories. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That'll take you to Discord and all sorts of lovely places. Okay. There we go. Um, our chatter break question. Um, how do we think how do we think she's going to fare? Uh, we know a little bit about these two tributes who have been chosen. Uh, uh, Katniss and Peta. We know very little about Peta. We know a little bit more about uh, Katniss. How do we think they're going to fare? And of course, the important question, why? There we go. Everyone? I hope you will enjoy our third chapter, of course, chapter three of our new adventure, The Hunger Games, book one. Chapter three. The moment the anthem ends, we're taken into custody. I don't mean we're handcuffed or anything, but a group of peacekeepers marches through the front door of the Justice Building. Maybe tributes have tried to escape in the past. I've never seen it happen, though. Once inside, I'm conducted to a room and left alone. It's the richest place I've ever been, with thick, deep carpets and a red velvet couch and chairs... I know velvet because my mother has a dress with a collar made of the stuff. When I sit on the couch, I can't help running my fingers over the fabric repeatedly. It helps to calm me as I try to prepare for the next hour. The time allotted for the tributes to say goodbye to their loved ones. I can't afford to get upset, to leave this room with puffy eyes and a red nose. Crying is not an option. There will be more cameras at the train station. My sister and my mother come first. I reach out to Prim and she climbs onto my lap, her arms around my neck, head on my shoulder, just like she did when she was a toddler. My mother sits beside me and wraps her arm around us. For a few minutes we say nothing. 
and I start telling them all the things they must remember to do now that I will not be there to do them for them. Prim is not to take any Tesserae. They can get by if they're careful on selling Prim's goat milk and cheese and the small apothecary business my mother now runs for the people in the seam. Gail will get her the herbs she doesn't grow by herself, but she needs to be very careful to describe them because he's not so familiar as I am. He'll also bring them game. He and I made a pact about this a year or so ago. And he probably won't ask for compensation, but they should thank him with some kind of trade, like milk or medicine. I don't bother suggesting Prim learns how to hunt. I tried to teach her a couple of times, and it was disastrous. The woods terrified her, and whenever I shot something, she'd get teary and talk about how we might be able to heal it if it came home with us soon enough. But she makes out well with her goat, so I concentrate on that. When I'm done with instructions about fuel and trading and staying in school, I turn to my mother and grip her arm hard. Listen to me. Are you listening to me? She nods, alarmed by my intensity. She must know what's coming. You can't leave again, I say. My mother's eyes find the floor. I know. I I won't. I couldn't help. Well, you're going to have to help this time. You can't clock out and leave Prim on her own. There's no me now to keep you both alive. It doesn't matter what happens. Whatever you see on the screen, you have to promise me you're going to fight through it. My voice had risen in all the anger and all the fear that I felt at her abandonment. She pulls her arm from my grasp, moved to anger herself now. I was ill. I could have treated myself if I had the medicine that I've got now. That part about her being ill might be true. I've seen her bring back people suffering from immobilizing sadness since. Perhaps it is a sickness, but it's one we can't afford. Then take it and take care of her, I say. It'll be all right, Katniss, says Prim, clasping my face in her hands. But you have to take care, too. You're so fast and brave. Maybe you can win. I can't win. Prim must know that in her heart. The competition will be far beyond my abilities. Kids from wealthier districts where winning is a huge honor, who have trained their whole lives for this. Boys and girls who are three times my size. People who know 20 different ways to kill you with a knife. There will be people like me, too. People to weed out before the real fun begins. Maybe, I say because I can hardly tell my mother to carry on if I've already given up myself. Besides, it isn't in my nature to go down without a fight, even when things seem insurmountable. And then we'd be the richest Hamish. I don't care if we're rich. I just want you to come home. You will try, won't you? Really, really try? Asks Prim. Really, really try? I swear it, I say. And I know, because of Prim, I'll have to. And then the peacekeeper is at the door, signaling our time is up. And we're all hugging each other so hard it hurts, and I'm saying, I love you, I love you both. And they're saying it back, and then the peacekeeper orders them out, and the door closes. I bury my head in one of the velvet pillows, as if this can block the whole thing out. Someone else enters the room, And when I look up, I'm surprised to see it's the baker, Peter Malark's father. I can't believe he's come to visit me, 
After all, I'll be trying to kill his son soon. But we do know each other a bit, and he knows Prim even better. When she sells her goat cheese at the hob, she puts two of them aside for him, and he gives her a generous amount of bread in return. We always wait to trade with him when his witch of a wife isn't around because he's so much nicer. I feel certain he would never have hit his son the way that she did over that burnt bread. But why is he come here to see me? The baker sits awkwardly at the edge of one of the plush chairs. He's a big, broad-shouldered man with burn scars from years at the ovens. He must have just said goodbye to his son. He pulls out a white paper package from his jacket pocket and holds it out to me. I open it and find cookies. These are a luxury we can never afford. Thank you, I say. The baker's not very talkative, even in the best of times, and today he has no words at all. I had some of your bread this morning. My friend Gail gave you a squirrel for it. He nods as if remembering the squirrel. Not your best trade, I say. He shrugs as if it couldn't possibly matter. Then I can't think of anything else, so we sit in silence until a peacemaker summons him. He rises and coughs to clear his throat. I'll keep an eye on the little girl. Make sure she's eating. I feel some of the pressure in my chest lighten at his words. People deal with me, but they're genuinely fond of Prim. Maybe there will be enough fondness to keep her alive. My next guest is unexpected. Madge walks straight to me. She's not weepy or evasive. Instead, there's an urgency about her tone that surprises me. They let you wear one thing from your district in the arena? One thing to remind you of home? Will you wear this? She holds out the circular gold pin that she wore on her dress earlier. I hadn't paid much attention to it before, but now I see it's a small bird in flight. Your pin? I say. Wearing a token from my district is the last thing on my mind. Here, I'll, I'll put it on your dress, all right? Madge doesn't wait for an answer. She just leans in and fixes the bird to my dress. Promise you'll wear it to the arena, Katniss. Promise? Yes, I say. Cookies, a pin. I'm getting all kinds of gifts today. Madge gives me one more. A kiss on the cheek. Then she's gone, and I'm left thinking that maybe Madge really has been my friend all along. Finally, Gail is there, and maybe there's nothing romantic between us, but when he opens his arms, I don't hesitate to go to them. His body is familiar to me. The way that it moves, the smell of wood smoke, even the sound of his heart beating I know from quiet moments on a hunt. But this is the first time I really feel it, lean and hard-muscled against my own. Hey, listen. Getting a knife should be pretty easy. But you got to get your hands on a bow. That's your best chance. They don't always have bows, I say, thinking of the year that there were only horrible spiked maces the tributes had to bludgeon one another to death with. Then make one, says Gale. Even a weak bow is better than no bow at all. I've tried copying my father's bows with poor results. It's not that easy. Even he had to scrap his own work sometimes. I don't even know if there's going to be wood, I say. 
Another year, they tossed everybody into a landscape of nothing but boulders and sand and scruffy bushes. I particularly hated that year. Many contestants were bitten by venomous snakes or went insane from thirst. There's almost always some wood. Since that year that half of them died in the cold. Not much entertainment in that. It's true. We spent one Hunger Games watching the players freeze to death at night. You could hardly see them because they were huddled in balls and had no wood for fires or torches or anything. It was considered very anticlimactic in the capital. All those quiet, bloodless deaths. Since then, there's usually been wood to make fires. Yeah, there's usually some, I say. Katniss, it's just hunting. You're the best hunter I know, says Gail. It's not just hunting, they're armed. They think, I say. So do you. And you've had more practice. Real practice. You know how to kill. Not people. How can... Can it really be that different? Says Gail grimly. The awful thing is that if I can forget their people, it will be no different at all. The peacekeepers are back too soon, and Gail asks for more time, but they're taking him away, and I start to panic. Don't let them starve! I cry out, clinging to his hand. I won't! You know I won't! Katniss, remember, I... He says, and they yank us apart and slam the door. And I'll never know what it was he wanted me to remember. It's a short ride from the Justice Building to the train station. I'd never been in a train before. Rarely even ridden in wagons. In the seam, we travel on foot. I've been right not to cry. The station is swarming with reporters with their insect-like cameras trained directly on my face. But I've had lots of practice at wiping my face clean of emotions, and I do this now. I catch a glimpse of myself in the television screen on the wall, airing my arrival live, and I feel gratified that I appear almost bored. Peter Malark, on the other hand, has obviously been crying, and interestingly enough, does not seem to be trying to cover it up. I immediately wonder if this will be his strategy in the games, to appear weak and frightened, to reassure the other tributes that he's no competition at all, and then to come out fighting. This worked very well for a girl, uh, Joanna Mason, from District 7 a few years back. She seemed like such a sniveling, cowardly fool that no one bothered about her until there were only a handful of contestants left. It turned out she could kill viciously. Pretty clever, the way she played it. But this seemed an odd strategy for Peter Malark because he's a baker's son. All those years of having enough to eat and hauling bread trays around had made him broad-shouldered and strong. It'll take an awful lot of weeping to convince anyone to overlook him. We have to stand for a few minutes in the doorway of the train while the cameras gobble up our images. Then we're allowed inside and the doors close mercifully behind us. The train begins to move at once. The speed initially takes my breath away. Of course, I've never been on a train, as travel between the districts is forbidden except for officially sanctioned duties. For us, that's mainly transporting coal. But this is no ordinary coal train. It's one of the high-speed capital models that averages 250 miles per hour. Our journey to the capital will take less than a day. In school, they tell us that the capital was built in a place once called the Rockies. District 12 was in a region known as Appalachia. 
Even hundreds of years ago, they mined coal here, which is why our miners have to dig so deep. Somehow it all comes back to coal at school. Besides basic reading and math, most of our instruction is coal-related, except for the weekly lecture on the history of Pan Am. It's mostly a lot of blather about what we owe the capital. I know there must be more than they're telling us. An actual account of what happened during the rebellion, but I don't spend much time thinking about it. Whatever the truth is, I don't see how it will help me get food on the table. The tribute train is fancier than even the room on the Justice Building. We're each given our own chambers that have a bedroom, a dressing area, a private bathroom with hot and cold running water. We don't have hot water at home unless we boil it. There are drawers filled with fine clothes, and Effie Trinket tells me to do anything I want, wear anything I want, everything is at my disposal. Just be ready for supper in an hour. I peel off my mother's blue dress and take a hot shower. I've never had a shower before. It's like being in a summer rain, only warmer. I dress in a dark green shirt and pants. At the last minute, I remember Madge's little gold pin. For the first time, I get a good look at it. It's as if someone fashioned a little golden bird and then attached a ring around it. The bird is connected to the ring only by the wingtips. I suddenly recognize it. A mocking jay. They're funny birds and something of a slap in the face to the capital. During the rebellion, the capital bred a series of genetically altered animals as weapons. The common term for them was muttations, or sometimes mutts for short. One was a special bird called a jabber jay that had the ability to memorize and repeat whole human conversations. They were homing birds, exclusively male, that were released into regions where the capital's enemies were known to be hiding. After the birds gathered words, they would fly back to the centers to be recorded. It took people a while to realize what was going on in the districts, how private conversations were being transmitted. Then, of course, the rebels fed the capital endless lies, and the joke was on it. So the centers were shut down, and the birds were abandoned to die off in the wild. Only, they didn't die off. Instead, the jabberjays mated with female mockingbirds, creating a whole new species that could replicate both bird whistles and human melodies. They'd lost the ability to enunciate words, but could still mimic a range of human vocal sounds, from a child's high-pitched warble to a man's deep tones, and they could recreate songs. Not just a few notes, but whole songs with multiple verses, if you had the patience to sing them, and if they liked your voice. My father was particularly fond of mocking jays. When we went hunting, he would often whistle or sing complicated tunes back to them, and after a polite pause, they would always sing back. Not everyone is treated with such respect. But whenever my father sang, all the birds in the area would fall silent and listen. His voice was that beautiful, high and clear and so filled with life it made you want to laugh and cry at the same time. I could never bring myself to continue the practice after he was gone. Still, there's something comforting about the little bird. It's like having a piece of my father with me, protecting me. I fasten the pin onto my shirt, and with the dark green fabric as a background, I can almost imagine the Mockingjay flying through the trees. Effie Trinket comes to collect me for supper. 
I follow her through the narrow, rocking corridor to a dining room with polished paneled walls. There's a table where all the dishes are highly breakable. Peter Malark sits waiting for us, the chair next to him empty. Where's Hamish? asks Effie Trinket brightly. The last I saw him, he said he was going to take a nap, said Peter. Well, it's been an exhausting day, says Effie Trinket. I think she's relieved by Hamish's absence, and who can blame her? The supper comes in courses. A thick carrot soup, green salad, lamb chops and mashed potatoes, cheese and fruit, a chocolate cake. Throughout the meal, Effie Trinket keeps reminding us to save space because there's more to come, but I'm stuffing myself because I've never had food like this. So good and so much. And because probably the best thing I can do between now and the games is put on a few pounds. At least you two have decent manners, says Effie as we're finishing the main course. The pair last year ate everything with their hands like a couple of savages. It completely upset my digestion. The pair last year were two kids from the seam who never, not one day in their lives, had enough to eat. And when they did have foods, table manners were surely the last thing on their minds. Peter was a baker's son. My mother taught Prim and I how to eat properly, so yes, I can handle a fork and a knife. But I hate Effie Trinket's comment so much, I make a point of eating the rest of the meal with my fingers. And I wipe my hands on the tablecloth. This makes her purse her lips tightly together. Now that the meal is over, I'm fighting to keep the food down. I can see Peter's looking a little green, too. Neither of our stomachs are used to such rich fare. But if I can hold down Greasy Say's concoction of mice meat, pig entrails, and tree bark, a winter specialty, I'm determined to hang on to this. We go to another compartment, and I watch the recap of the reapings across Pan Am. They try to stagger them throughout the day so a person could conceivably watch the whole thing live, but only people in the capital really do that, since none of them have to attend reapings themselves. One by one, we see other reapings. The names called. The volunteers stepping forward, or more often, not. We examine the faces of the kids who will be our competition. A few stand out in my mind. A monstrous boy who lunges forward to volunteer from District 2. A fox-faced girl with a sleek red hair from... District 5, a boy with a crippled foot from District 10, and most hauntingly, a 12-year-old girl from District 11. She has dark brown skin and eyes, but other than that, she's very much like Prim in size and demeanor. Only when she mounts the stage and they ask for volunteers, all you can hear is the wind whistling through the decrepit buildings around her. There's no one willing to take her place. Last of all, they show District 12. Prim being called, me running forward to volunteer. You can't miss the desperation in my voice as I shove Prim behind me. As if I'm afraid no one will hear me and they'll take Prim away. But of course, they do hear. I see Gail pulling her off me and watch myself mount the stage. The commentators are not sure what to say about the crowd's refusal to applaud. The silent salute. One says that District 12 has always been a bit backward, but that local customs can be charming. As if on cue, Hamish falls off the stage and they groan comically. Peter's name is drawn, and he quietly takes his place. We shake hands, they cut to the anthem again, and the program ends. 
Effie Trinket is disgruntled about the state her wig was in. Your mentor has a lot to learn about presentation, a lot about televised behavior. Peter unexpectedly laughs. <laughs> he was drunk, says Peter. He's drunk every year. Every day, I add. I can't help smirking a little bit. Effie Trinket makes it sound like Haymitch just has somewhat rough manners that could be corrected with a few tips from her. Yes, hisses Effie Trinket. How odd you do find it amusing. You know your mentor is your lifeline to the world in these games. The one who advises you, lines up your sponsors, dictates the presence of any gifts. Hamish can't well be the difference between your life and your death. Just then Hamish staggers into the compartment. Then I may suffer, he says in a slurred voice. Then he vomits all over the expensive carpet and falls into the mess. So laugh away says Effie Trinket. She hops in her pointy shoes around the pool of vomit and flees the room. That is it for today, folks. Once again, I do this every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to check out more head to Flying Sidecar on wherever you get your podcast, uh, your favorite podcatcher. Uh, head to the link, linktree slash sidecar stories. That will take you to the Discord. That will take you to all sorts of places where you're going to be able to find more sidecar stuff. But at the very least, go ahead and give it a follow if you're new around here so that you know when to be back for next time. These are available for two weeks up here on Twitch, but of course, it is better to be here for them live, isn't it? It's more fun? I think so. Um... Now, folks, how is everyone doing? I am certainly delighted to be starting a new little adventure here. Yo, a new adventure! We read in the entirety of Harry Potter. We read the entirety of Percy Jackson. And now we are embarking into the Hunger Games. Not only that, but we have read, uh, I mean, since we started with Harry Potter and then began new shows like Side Cannons on Wednesdays, Vintage Sidecar on Tuesdays, we have had a full campaign of Chat Plays Dungeon World, which was amazing. It's so much fun to be continuing to build out that word, that wordle, uh, that world on Wednesdays. Uh, on Tuesdays, of course, we have read uh, Frankenstein and uh, <laughs> The Great Gatsby and... Um, you know what? I'm not going to go through the list because it's a struggle every time. I don't know why. I need to just start to like keep it on a post-it note. But uh, Gwendog says a couple things. I can't really grok why they do the games and who Effie is. Well, Gwendog, uh, likely we will be learning more about this. But the the rough the the rough summary is, at one point long long ago, uh, as the as the oceans rose and food became more scarce and the climate changed. Um, uh, land got more scarce. Resources got more scarce. Um, and uh, essentially, the uh, things got nuts. Um, there was the capital in the middle and then these 13 districts surrounding it. Um, the capital was not sort of governing well. And so the districts rebelled. And so now, as a punishment for that rebellion, and really, you know, more of a prophylactic against a future rebellion... Um, to keep them weak, to keep them uh, uh, fighting with one another, right? To, to maintain a sense of competition between districts rather than a sense of unity between districts. Um, now, uh, as as a tool for 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 fear and division, these games are upheld um, to uh, to keep them separated, both explicitly and in more subtle ways. Um, 
<laughs> Sam is our king. Oh, Molly Waffles Jr. Thank you so much. Uh, Jem says, I'm going to have to make this happen. What is this? What is this? I miss Thursday nights. Oh, just to be here for Thursdays? I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Neens finally has Thursday nights free. Fantastic. That is so great to hear. Louise is feeling good about this start. I am too. I thought this was a good one. We've had so many rough starts. I'm sure I'm going to get to my recording deck later and find out that this this episode is entirely corrupted. I'll have to redo the whole thing. There will be some nonsense. Every time I try to start a new book, things just everything goes crazy. I'm out of town or I try to do some crazy new thing with uh, sound effects or something. I gotta have just one time where it just it starts well and it just sort of I, I don't have to like scramble my way back to standard. Van says, "Great job this week. Thank you very much, Van. I appreciate you." Dahlia says, "Wow, such a great first stream of the new book series, right, Dahlia?" <laughs> Dahlia's one of the hardcores, one of the, one of the most hardcore. So Dahlia knows. Dahlia knows <laughs> the, the the trip that we have. Every new book, there's something new. There's something. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, JCA says, "This is uh, this time. It's just the listeners that are crazy, crazy for your voices." JCA, I'm wondering if you and the rest of you folk have wondered, uh, have sort of figured out how I am. I'm kind of trying to organize these voices. You may have heard quite a few voices that sound fairly similar. Um, I'm trying something. We'll see if it works. Do let me know <laughs> if it's nuts. Um, but uh, this this first book, I think it's gonna be it's gonna be helpful. It's gonna be effective. Uh, and then as we get into the book two, I think it's gonna, where it's gonna be just vitally important because we've got lots of voices from lots of different districts. Um, Lots to uh, lots to mess around with. Uh, Tanisha, yes, indeed. Uh, Irish and uh, some others as well, but uh, certainly, yeah, Irish for um, uh, for gay. Uh, nope, yeah, for Gale, um, for Katniss, um, for you know that for for their family. Basically, I'm using Irish for the um, uh, for the seam, which is sort of the the part of the of District Twelve where they come from. Uh, and then I've got some Scottish voices for more uptown. Basically, I'm kind of using the UK as the basis for this territory here. But uh, yeah, we are definitely going to be exploring uh, some additional voices as well. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it off because I, I think there may be simply too many voices from the capital. But I'm kind of going to shoot for like that trans that that like um, what do they call it? I think it is called the transatlantic accent, if I remember correctly. It's something Atlantic, um, but it is it is a an accent that doesn't really exist, uh, but that came about as a result of film stars like trying to sort of uh make a make a name for themselves so it's this thing you see in old black and white movies uh am i going to be able to pull it off uh or are there going to be too many characters from the capital to really differentiate we shall see y'all i hope that you have enjoyed this it, i don't believe I, gwenda or uh, good courage i don't think it is transylvanian uh, but i could be wrong <laughs> Stupid. Oh boy. Uh Gwen Dog says, I thought I heard Ron with a different accent in there for a minute. That's a, a little bit in there. A little bit. Uh Jem says Catherine Hepburn made that accent accent popular. She was certainly one of them, yes. There was a there was a sort of pack of actors. Um if I remember correctly, the the initial sort of uh uh swell of this non-existent accent uh came from radio. Um, I believe I, I thought that it, I, I thought I read somewhere that it originated in radio, but I could be wrong. We shall see everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. 
let's let's talk about this chapter for a little bit and let's talk about this book i am so excited to get into this book um the Percy Jackson series read pretty young to me. And as such, it, you know, when when, it, when I wanted to talk about, ooh, 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 the mumble mouth is strong today. Uh, when it wanted to talk about serious things, it often sort of shied away from it. It felt like it was very shy to talk about, to, to really dig into some serious issues. This one, this one does not pull back. It seems from much so far, right? We've talked about... Uh, depression. We have talked about um, uh, tyranny. We have talked about uh, uh, unity. We have talked about um, uh, propaganda and and using things in order to divide people, uh, even things that are sort of dressed up as celebrations. We've talked about what people in power don't like, right? This is stuff that is super, super relevant to the world today. And uh, this book doesn't seem so casual with it doesn't doesn't seem to want to like sort of like poke it and then sort of like laugh and step back a little bit and be like ah see no i'm just joking it's fine it's fine we'll have a horse make a joke about it no this one this one seems to really get into it um and i think that is going to give us a lot of opportunities to have a lot of good discussion here but the one i want to really get kicked off with the one that i the one that is making me so thankful to jump into this series right now is the message about unity. Now, we're not there yet, right? We don't quite have it there, but I guess we'll just have to look at it by um, uh, in reverse. We'll have to look at the mirror image, I suppose. We'll have to look at the version of this. Um, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to look at what this says and then by the exclusion, what it's saying about other things. What it's saying right now is that, you know, this sense of competition, this sense of being in opposition to people in other spaces, um, whether whether or not that feels enforced uh, is that, that feeling of being in competition, of being in opposition to other people is not productive. We end up with cruelty. We end up uh, in this world that has accepted really cruel practices, right? Uh, and not only that, but look at the at the more local level where it does emphasize the importance of unity, not just the devastation of a lack of unity, right? Uh, we get more local here. Uh, the people who really like Prim, the people who, even though uh, Katniss does not consider herself to be like a real community member, I think we can agree that this is sort of part of this protagonist that we're starting to understand is that she does not consider herself a real, like, a, a real upstanding member of the seam or of District 12. Um, this is not a place where she considers herself, like, a real homebody. But still, she talks about the ways in which uh, her relationship with the old baker, not the baker's wife, we know baker's wife is trouble, but but the baker uh, with PETA, um, the relationship that Prim has with uh, these individuals, uh, that they have with old Say, um, uh, who, who makes, you know, mouse stew in the winters, but mouse stew that keeps them alive. Uh, this sense of, of community that does seem present here, how it's not only helpful, but it is vital. And I think... I think what we're going to continue to understand is is what this book wants to say about losing that sense of community, losing that sense that we are people who interact with one another and how the people within these communities, no one is unimportant. 
we can try to pretend to ourselves that there are unimportant people or that there are, uh, you know, groups that just maybe we let them fend for themselves and we don't really worry about them because they're not really our concern. And that's that's how we that's how we live in a Pan Am. That's how we end up in a Pan Am is is by deciding for ourselves that we don't need to pay mind to the people who are doing the hard work, the people who are doing difficult work, who are doing uh, things that aren't elegant, who are doing really vital vital parts of society, uh, who are participating as vital parts of society. Um, there's a whole district here in District 12 that is surviving all on its own because of a lack of unity um, and. We're going to get into it in the future. I want to just sort of kick it off with that because in the future, I mean, probably for many of these discussions that we're going to have after these, we're going to be talking much more about how that sense of disunity is is encouraged and perpetuated, right? Why why is it that this group is this this district is so disconnected from elsewhere? From the other districts? Why why do they why do they have to feel even about people in their own district? Why why is it that Gail has this sense of of I mean real anger, real genuine rage uh toward Madge, who lives here in a better situation than him, but not by a ton. She's not safe from the Hunger Games. She, her name's going in there uh, as well. Why is it that Gail feels this rage toward her? We're going to talk about that quite a bit and how this sense of disunity kind of benefits certain people and why we should watch out for that and rip it out by the roots when we see it. There we go. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on, but right now I just want to I just want to sort of really highlight the the sense of community that this talks about here because in spite of the fact that these these conditions that they're in are uh, are artificial Right there's this there is an artificial scarcity here um, that need not exist. In spite of the fact that it's artificial, that it is uh, contrived, and that that is mean it is being used as a means of control. In spite of that, we look within these times of hardship and we can see the importance that their community has, and that their interconnectedness has, and that they have this this sense of even among those who are like like. Katniss, who says, I deal with these people, there is a there is a strong understanding that this is this may be transactional, but it's for our mutual benefit. We may be here to do business, but we are here to do business instead of what we could be here to do, which is I'm here with a knife to take what you have. Or some other threat to take what you have. There we go. Community. Recognition that uh, we are people who are in difficult times together, no matter how contrived they may be. Gwendog says, oh man, we haven't heard a Boston accent yet. Or like a New Hampshire slash Maine. Uh, that's the thing, Gwendog. I am bad at that part of the country. Um, you know, I could I could like take a stab at this sort of like fake kind of New York sort of thing almost. Um uh, but then we sort of we we try to get down to Boston. I it, there's like a, I can do like a lazy version of it, but it's it's not it's it's just not really there. I as long as they get the as you sort of throw me the right. Okay, this is actually going better than I thought it was. It's not good, but it's going better than I thought it was. <laughs> Uh, as long as you sort of throw the right uh, right vowels at me, then I can start to get it. But 
if, if you don't, if, if, if I don't have like the right lines to see, it just starts to, if I don't have the right lines to say it, it just sort of moves right up back to New York. <laughs> just a sort of a sloppy East Coast stew of accents is where we're at. <laughs> East Coast, uh, East Coast voice and mouse meat stew. Can I do Peter Griffin? I can and I won't out of principle. I, I won't and I'll, I'll pout about it. <laughs> Jem says Maine is hard to get. They're their own group. And Sam, that wasn't bad. Yeah, it was okay. It was it was better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but then again, I got to choose a lot of my own vowels. Uh, good Lord, these discussions are going to get deep. Yeah, Gems, we've read three chapters. Can you guess how it's going to get? I've been wanting to get into these more and more. I've, I've really been wanting to get back to these. Uh, I am. It's important to me that these are part of what we do here. Um, because... There are audiobooks out there. That's not what I'm trying to be. Um, I'm trying to have fun vocal performances, yes. Uh, but what I ultimately want this to be is I want to take these books and really look at them. I want to spend time getting to know the characters and the setting and the ways in which the author has put these things together to make them, uh, uh, to sort of make the clockwork tick and what the author is trying to say with all of this. And within all of that, just sort of the gratification, the fun, or the importance that we can get out of trying to understand these better, reading it to understand it rather than just reading it to enjoy it. JCA says, lol, East Coast. Can you get a Newfie accent in the mix? Y'all, I'm telling you, it's a big stew up there, uh, and I can't even touch a Cajun accent. As we, If we head, like, further further south, um, I can't mess with those at all. I can do a few different southern, like, I can hit Panhandle, I can hit Texas, I can hit, um, uh, like, Georgia, but if we hit, if, if we try to do, like, um, you know, Louisiana, uh, there's an accent called Yat, Y-A-T, which sounds like, like a cross between Appalachian and jersey honestly it's very strange that it, it's it sounds like that but is this thing called yat from just i want to say just north of um uh like baton rouge that kind of territory I, I think it's like southern appalachias i think please don't quote me on geography uh yet i can do kind of okay but i can't i can't really do cajun it just sounds like it just sounds like i i'm like Constantly forgetting the word I want to say and then remembering it the moment I, I need it. That's what it sounds like when I try to do a Cajun accent. Um, but yeah, Cajun Creole, like I, I can't mess around in that area as well. So uh, there are things that I practice. Um, I, I can't tell you all how much time I've spent trying to practice that Boston accent. It just doesn't like arrive to me. But uh, mostly it's kind of down to like whether or not I can find represented temptations of them in media. I need to hear, basically, I need to hear somebody speak in a specific accent a lot. It helps if it's just one person. So if, I, if somebody can recommend a show at me, um, because like even, even um, uh, like a film, I can't, that's not enough material for me to like get down a Boston accent. I need to hear one person use it a lot, a lot, a lot. So multiple films, maybe. But uh, for instance, like I've, like I've seen Goodwill Hunting, I've heard a Boston accent. Doesn't mean I can get it down. I need to, I need like uh, I need the I need like Boston PD or something. JCA says your Scottish PETA was lovely. I look forward to hearing more. Um, well, I'm hoping yeah, I'm hoping that this sort of like reads properly and it doesn't come off as like cheesy um, or or lazy. <laughs> that is my hope. <laughs> I'm hitting UK for District Twelve and you. Uh, Honestly, both of us are kind of going to see how some of these develop in the future from other districts. 
<laughs> Gwen Duck says, only actors from Boston can really do the accent. That seems sensible to me. It is a, it is a, it is a more, it's a crueler taskmaster than uh, lots of other accents. Yeah. That one, it's like, it's like the Welsh accent of the United States. Like, it's the sort of thing where I can, I can, I can describe to you the different points off of which I would launch for the different the different specificities of it, but I can't do one. There are plenty of accents that I can't explain it or do it, but for whatever reason, Welsh, uh, Boston, there are ones that I could describe to you in detail, and yet I cannot do it with my mouth. Maureen O'Hara's did a not bad version of it, being an Irish lady, says Gems. Okay, interesting. Interesting. Good to know. Um, Ruckstar, hello and welcome back, Ruckstar. How do you do? <laughs> I guess not welcome back, but sort of welcome welcome to here. Welcome to what we're up to. Uh, I will say you're coming in at the tail end of this. We are just now discussing the three chapters that we read today. Uh, we start at 4 p.m. Pacific time, but this is what I do here. Uh, if you want to know about what Ruckstar is up to, hey, folks, head on over and check out. I mean, Zodiac Task Force is a, a great one that I've been able to, uh, I've been privileged to lend my voice to, but uh, Raving Lunatic Media, folks. Uh, Raving Lunatic Media does quite a few little fun shows. I've been on that one. I've been on uh, Cold Case Chase, and the the <laughs> stuff that they do over there really is fantastic. And not only that, but they are starting up an RPG show, which is super exciting. Uh, they've got a very cool cast in there, and uh, I think it is going to be a fantastic time. I hope you all will go and check it out. Um, the uh, the like I said, uh, that raving lunatic media. But if you're looking for specific shows, um, I will actually I can pop a list in unless Rockstar wants to do so over in the uh, general RPG chat channel. Uh, Rockstar, you can even pop in links, whatever you wish to do. I have I have linked them over here um, as well when people have fun stuff to uh, to listen to. But yeah, gems gems is up in the mix over there as well. Y'all will hear gems plenty, uh, and gems is of course excellent. Why would you not want to go find gems? Uh, Vancey's Live says, JFK is tricky because <laughs> even him using it sounds like a silly impression. He does like he does sound like he was sort of doing an impression of his own self, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> and he's one of those where it's like it's very much based on pattern um, as opposed to like intonation or specific ways to um, uh, say certain syllables. You know, Boston, like, there, there's that sort of, you, you say the words differently. And I, I told you it's not a good one. But, uh, you know, down here, right, these are, you're, you're, you're shaping the words different. Uh, and, of course, sometimes you get in there with some weird stuff, like, <laughs> different, said it differently. But uh, the important thing is that his cadence, yeah, absolutely, Van. It's a, it's a cadence as much as it's a voice. And what that makes it really challenging for is singing. Y'all have wanted me to do some of these voices like Luna, for instance. Luna's Luna's whole voice is defined by just Sam doing a pretty high American accent. That's that's the whole Luna voice, except I also do it in sort of a sing-song pattern. When I can't do that, when I when I when I have the demands of a melody, <laughs> then it's like, is it still Luna or is it just Sam with a really high-pitched voice? Um uh, yeah, so th there are some certain uh, parts of the JFK accent that I, I could sing with, but overall it's just going to sound like me sort of shouting into my mic. <laughs> uh, singing, yes, Jem, singing in some accents is super tough. Uh, of course, singing in a southern accent, that's no big deal. 
that ain't a big deal at all because I, I heard it a million times. I grew up in the Midwest, you know. So uh, this this is about half uh, over half of what was on the radio. It, it was a tough uh, tough old putt to find something that didn't sound like this, and when it was, it was some some such I wasn't interested in anyway. Ugh. Maybe like the door and turn the lights down low. <laughs> that for, I don't know why that's my go-to for country music. I don't know. Learn some music on the soft. Anyway, 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 gang, I hope you've enjoyed this quite a bit. Uh, of course, we have some traditions to uphold, all right? We have some traditions to uphold. I hope you will uh, come back and join me over in Discord throughout the week. Hunger Games Discussion, that is the channel to be in. Uh, I want to see you all over there and we can continue to discuss these things midweek because I don't want to just like have the stream be the end of it, okay? Um, I want to talk about this sense of community. I want to talk about this sense of like um, uh, contrived scarcity. I want to talk about these contrived harsh conditions. Uh, I want to talk about propaganda and the way that it is used and why it is used and how to identify it. I want to talk about these things, all right? So we're gonna, by golly, and we're gonna do it over in Discord.